Well, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to get those out or point your devices to the Wi-Fi network. Uh, if you're looking for one and the password, uh, it's all, it's, it's one word, Centralia Church, and it's all uh, lowercase. So you can connect that way if you are a, a digital Bible reader. There's a, there's a verse in the Psalms, I think it's 34 verse 8, and it starts off, and it, and it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I, I like that verse. It just, it calls us in to an activity, right? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, we use that a lot. Yeah, how many of you have gone home and, you know, it's the end of the day and it's about dinner time and somebody in your household has, has been cooking up a storm and it smells good and you, you walk in the door and you're like, oh, that smells good. What, what's for dinner? Ah, soup. Oh, what, what's in the soup? You'll have to taste and see, right? I was on a missions trip to Europe and... Uh, we went to Scotland, and the national dish of Scotland is called haggis. Do you know what haggis is? You may not want to know what haggis is. Uh, they they uh, mince up a bunch of parts, mix it with some stuff, and they boil it in, in the sheep's stomach. Um, now, I didn't fully know what haggis was before we got there, and so they put it out on our plate, and we're like, what's this? And they said, taste and see. You'll like it, they said. <laughs> Some of you might. My, uh, my father-in-law, he, he was not an adventurous eater at all. Ground hamburger, potatoes, pancakes, milk, chocolate. <laughs> That's, that's, that's like the diet right there. I mean, I'm not, that's not too much of a stretch. And we had this 25-year running joke where he, he would come into our house and, you know, we'd cook like, he liked ketchup. And, um, and so, you know, spaghetti's not too far of a stretch, you know. I'm like, so it's, it's like you can try the spaghetti. No, no, I don't like it. How about the broccoli? I, tr I tried introducing that man to green vegetables for 25 years, and I failed. <laughs> <laughs> but my thing with him was always, he would say, oh, I don't like that. I'm like, you've never tried it. How about you taste and see? I'm one of the guys who, if, if, if I'm going out to a restaurant, especially one that I've maybe never been to before or, or haven't been to for a while, I'm always the guy who asks the waiter or the waitress, hey, what do you recommend? What, what's good? And I don't like it when they say, well, some people like, or this is really popular, or I hear what I'm really listening for is somebody who's tasted and seen. And because, because they are the ones who, when they start talking about something on the menu that they really like, that's a really good sales pitch for me. Because they are 
kind of emotionally invested in it, and they know what they're talking about, and it just sort of, oh, they paint this picture that just makes my mouth start watering. I'm like, yes, I'll have that. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I, I don't want you to take your faith because somebody else says it was good. I, I don't want you to, to count yourself as part of the kingdom because you just show up here and you hear me say that the kingdom of heaven is good and that the Lord is righteous and loving and graceful and merciful. I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good for yourself. There's a passage of Scripture. We're, we're in a sort of a mini-series in this core group season, and we're looking in on the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to take a section of, of Scripture today. It's in Matthew chapter 5, if you have your Bibles out. And I want to start reading in verse 13. And the whole premise of this message is taste and see that the Lord is good so that others can taste and see that the Lord is good. You got that? Taste and see that the Lord is good so that others can taste and see that the Lord is good Matthew records Jesus' message this way, chapter 5, picking up in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Might be an odd place to leave off, but there we are. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I, what I want to do is I want to start looking at the last few verses that we read there in Chapter 5 in, in verse 17. Uh, verse 17 to 20, I, I think it's my opinion that it's sort of the interpretive key for the whole Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, uh, and he's, he's uh, 
tested on this multiple times in the Gospels, uh, his understanding of the law. Should we still follow the law and the, the commandments that God gave to Moses, or are they going away? And Jesus says right here, the law is not going away. I'm not here to abolish the law. I'm here to embody the law and show you what it looks like to live it out, to fulfill it, to, to make it whole. Matthew uses this word fulfill. He uses this word fulfill 16 times in, in his gospel. He uses it to describe how Jesus brought scripture to life. And Jesus brought scripture to life. Um, he did it by acting like the one to whom all scripture pointed. He showed us what God looks like while he was here on earth. Barbara Brown Taylor, uh, author, pastor, uh, she says, Jesus did not just recite Torah. He was Torah. In his words and deeds, he was the living justice, mercy, and faith of God. Jesus did not interpret Torah. He fulfilled Torah in his flesh. And he promised those who followed him that they could fulfill it too. The fulfillment Jesus has in mind for us is not simple conformity to its commands, but rather a heart alive to God. This is what the law is calling us into. This is what the law was pointing towards and, and suggesting all along. If you go back in your Bibles uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, it says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts so that you may love him with all your heart. God comes in and he does this transformative work in your heart so that you can love him with all of your heart. This is what the law is all about. See, if you only focus on perfectly adhering to all 613 commandments that God gave Moses, it might seem like an overwhelming, daunting, impossible sort of thing to accomplish. But let me, let me help you with this a little bit. Let's look at how Jesus summarizes all of the prophets in the law. So if, you, if you're in Matthew, flip over to uh, Flip over to Matthew chapter 22. And we're going to look at verse, uh, starting at verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? They were testing Jesus because by chapter 22 here, the way Matthew lays it out, the religious professionals, well, they've observed Jesus in action. He does lots of good things. Uh, he heals people, casts out demons. Uh, he has some spot-on teaching. But there's parts of his behavior that they, they have question about. See, they're asking him about the law because they don't really think that Jesus is one who practices the law perfectly. Because he has healed people on the Sabbath. 
That's a clear violation of the law. He, he, uh, he eats with sinners. Ah, that's a no-no. You don't do those sorts of things. And so there's points all along throughout Jesus' ministry that the Pharisees are looking in and there's these gotcha moments. Hey, we, we got this guy. We can nail him to a wall because, you know what, he's not really following the law. So what do you really, what do you really think of the law, Jesus? And so they regular, regularly ask him. And so at this point, they say, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. They ask him a question. It's like, what's the greatest one? And Jesus is like, I got two for you. (laughs) And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And listen to this, verse 40. All, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus has now taken the balance of the law, the prophets and the, the Torah, basically what we know as the Old Testament, and he has summed them up for us into two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. So he's summarized it for us and when we think about that's it's easier to to attack two things than it is 613 right so jesus has just given us a like a summary picture and given us uh maybe something a little easier to focus on not that it's any easier to fulfill those two things those are two huge commands for us and he says to the people gathered on that mountainside that day. This is what I want you to focus on. This is what I want you to practice with your life. This is what I want you to be teaching to other people. And then look, at, look down at verse 20, back in chapter 5. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. You know about the scribes and the Pharisees, right? We pick on them a lot. But in their day, they were the professional rule followers. They were the people of faith that others were trying to emulate because they knew, how to, they knew how to keep the laws. And Jesus says that unless your righteousness surpasses the professionals at this, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said that. I think that he probably had their attention at that moment might have been a little whiplash, but yeah, I'm thinking that those people gathered, they're wondering what he means. Like, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can live that kind of perfection, Jesus. I'm, I'm not a Pharisee for a reason. <laughs> it sounds like Jesus is telling us we just need to try harder 
and behave better than the best. It would be like telling a beginning piano student. You know, first few lessons on the bench, it would be like turning them, turning to them and saying, you know what, next week when you come back for your lesson, unless you can play the piano like Chopin, you know, you, you might want to not show up for lessons. It, it might be like um, talking, going to one of the high schools and talking to a budding physicist saying, you know what, I wouldn't sign up for that class next semester unless your knowledge exceeds that of Albert Einstein. It might be like going to somebody who's just gotten their first computer and they check out a book from the library on programming and it might be going to them and saying, you know what, you might as well just return that book to the library unless you can, unless you can outcode Bill Gates right now. Don't bother. That might be what it sounded like for these people to hear Jesus say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you're not going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. Nobody was better at law-keeping than the Pharisees. That's unfair, Jesus. What are you talking about? It's disheartening. Unless you can exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Thanks for playing. Have a nice day. Next. Is this what Jesus is talking about? Well, I want you to flip over in Matthew again. We're, we're kind of going a little bit back and forth. Matthew chapter 23 this time. Because if you've read the Gospels, you, you know that, that Jesus has an opinion about his religious contemporaries. And it's not always a good one. And so we kind of have to lay aside what he says here about exceeding the righteousness of the Pharisees and what Jesus says about the Pharisees. Maybe for us to understand what Jesus is driving at when he says, hey, you can do better than the Pharisees. So Matthew chapter 23, in verse 25, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Ouch! You, you shine up the outside, but the inside is filthy. Verse 26, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Verse 27, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Think you can do better than that? Maybe Jesus is making a statement to the people about righteousness on the one hand, and maybe on the other he is he's calling out the Pharisees of the day. He regarded them sort of as a, as a sham, as as nitpickers who, who loved the rules at the expense of relationship. 
They were clean on the outside, filthy on the inside. He was saying that the righteousness of the Pharisees was purely an exterior wash. And Jesus is saying, the righteousness that I'm calling you to goes back to the law. What the law was really about, what the law was intended for. The, the law was intended to restore the right relationship with God and do a work in the people's hearts. But they got mixed up and confused and it became about following the rules. And Jesus says it's not enough to be righteous in simply following rules. You have to have your heart changed by God. It's a work of the Holy Spirit who comes, who comes into your life and he sanctifies you. Now, that's a fancy, churchy-sounding word, isn't it? Sanctify. It's the activity of the Holy Spirit who, when we become followers of Jesus, enters into our life, and the Holy Spirit starts to do his work to cleanse us and to transform us and to purify us, and he works his way in and through the rooms of the house of our life. And once in a while, he'll get to a closet that's still filled with dust and cobwebs and that ugly sin that we don't want to tell anybody about. And the Holy Spirit says, I want that closet too. We need to work on that one. And when that one's done, he works his way through and he finds another one. And he does that cleansing work in your life. And Jesus is saying, this is what righteousness is all about. It's about the heart transformation. It's not about looking good on the outside. It's about looking good on the inside first. And then let that work its way to the exterior. See, the Pharisees could follow rules, but they didn't have any heart change. They didn't really know why they were following the rules. They, were, they just had this very legalistic air about them. Um, they followed the rules so that they could be right. They followed the rules so they could put them and elevate them to a cut above everybody else. They weren't following the rules because it was calling them to a higher way of transformed living. They were so right, they were so right, they were just flat out wrong. They missed the whole part of the law that called them to love. With the love of God that they were themselves enjoying. See, they practiced the law in ways that just sucked the very life out of it. And we're in the Sermon on the Mount. And when you read the Sermon on the Mount from, from start to finish, from the Beatitudes at the very beginning all the way to the last parable when, when Jesus talks about the wise and the foolish builders, if you read it from start to finish, the risk is, is that we, we set up a to-do list. We set up a checklist. And then we go back and we're like, okay, I, gotta, I, have my, I have my moral checklist now. And I have to do all of these things in order to receive the kingdom of heaven. And so we just get in that cycle. We're humans. We like, we like to work on things. We like to check things off our list. And so we make this long list out of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and we just start focusing on 
all of the, the moral platitudes that we read in it. And maybe we become Pharisee-like and we start to miss why is Jesus talking to these people about these things in the first place? It's not to create a checklist for them. It's, it's to get the law inside them so that it does that work on their heart. So that they would love God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind and that they would let that so transform them that, that, that they would go out and they would, they would have what they need. They would have the strength and the wherewithal to begin to practice the second one, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And when you think about, when you think about these things, you, you might think, wow, that's, that's really hard. I can't, I can't do that. And you're right, you can't. You can't on your own. You, you need God to be able to help you fulfill these things. You, you need God in your life. You need to taste and see that the Lord is good in order that you can share these things with other people. This is not something that you can earn on your own. You have to rely on the 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 way that God will change your heart by the gift of his pure grace. And so this grace comes in and he begins to change us and transform us and we begin to live for God. And, and when you allow God to come into your life and, and to do the sanctifying and cleansing and transforming work in you, you get to taste and see that the Lord is good. And when you taste and when you see God, when you see the Lord is good, then you begin to enter into the position where others can taste and see that the Lord is good through you. They will have, they will have the first-hand waiter or waitress testimony of what's on the menu. When they say, what's different about your life, you won't just say, hey, I've heard that you might want to give Jesus a try. Other people have, and it works for them. You can say, let me tell you about the way Jesus has transformed my life. So let's go back to Matthew 5. Let's go back to the first couple verses that, that we read. Verse 13 starts off, and, and in verse 13 through 16 there, Jesus makes a couple statements. He says, you are salt, and he says, you are light. You are salt, you are light. You are what Jesus declares you to be. He did not say, you might become salt, you might become light if you try really hard. He looks at those people who have made the decision to follow him and to sit down and to listen to his teaching, and he declares them to be salt and light. From that moment forward, this was a, the way that Jesus would define them. You are salt. You are light. You don't have to earn it. I'm declaring it today, right now. Folks, he wasn't just teaching a group of disciples that were gathered on a mountain 
maybe with the Sea of Galilee in the distance, with that sea air maybe blowing off. And those people were sitting there, and maybe it was a similar mountain where he, their stomachs started rumbling, and it got late in the day, and he ended up feeding 5,000 people. You can begin to just imagine yourself sitting in a grassy sort of field with water by and that, and that breeze blowing and, and listening to somebody. You can imagine yourself as part of that audience. You know why? Because you are part of Jesus' audience. He speaks these words. He declares these things about anyone who follows him. You are salt. You are light. I know. We're all works in progress, right? I put my hand in the air first. We're people who are searching for meaning. We're looking for direction. We're, we just want to know what our purpose is in life. And, and we come to Jesus to listen and to learn and to be healed and to have our lives put back together. We come from all sorts of different places and struggles. We come to him broken and in need of help. And he works his grace inside us. And he looks at us and he calls us salt and light doesn't matter where we are on our journey. When we step into his presence and we call on him as Lord and he begins that sanctifying work in us, you are salt. You are light. Now we could spend a whole bunch of time unpacking what does it mean to be salt? What does it mean to be light? I think the metaphors work pretty well. Salt is something that adds flavor. Share the flavor of Jesus with those around you. Add a zest for life that many people are seeking out, but they never find it. Season and transform human activity in such a way that it reveals God at work in this world. But Jesus also says that, hey, salt that loses its flavor is what? Worthless. Hmm. Well, salt, if you know... I don't know too much about chemistry, but I think that salt is a pretty stable compound, right? And if it's stable, that it doesn't really lose its flavor. The only way that salt loses its flavor is how? To dilute it with water. And so what Jesus is saying is, hey, salt that loses its flavor, maybe Jesus is saying, hey, don't allow what's going on inside of you to be diluted by a worldly influence. Don't dilute your spiritual life by mixing in a little bit of Jesus. I'm going to go to church on Sunday and, and I, got the, I got the Bible app on my phone and, and it, gives me a, it gives me a verse, you know, like a couple times a day. And uh, which, those are great things. But it goes back to a conversation we have once in a while we're people who love to have Jesus and something else. And Jesus is saying, usually the Jesus and over here is something that's going to dilute you. And the more we have this diluting influence, what is Jesus? You become worthless as salt. And so the way for salt to keep its saltiness, if we continue this metaphor, is to just go deeper in with Jesus, to spend the time in his presence and in prayer and in worship so that you are constantly tasting and seeing that the Lord is good so that you remain salty and others 
can have that flavor as well. He says, you are light. I love lighthouses. Lived on the Great Lakes for a while, and, and there were different lighthouses dotted all around. Some of them were to mark shallow water. Some of them were to mark danger. Some of them were, you know, like to, to create a, uh, you know, just to provide light. Here's the shore, and you're supposed to go this way. And light is used for all sorts of things. We come, go into a room, and we click on the light. Uh, so that we can see what's in there. And so I think as Christians, as Christ followers, we're, we're supposed to use light in all of those sorts of ways. Be the light to the world. This was not a new thing for Jesus to preach to people who were living in Israel. From, from back in the Old Testament, they had this understanding that Israel was set apart to be a light to the nations, that God was going to use Israel, he was going to bless them so that they could bless the world. And so Jesus continues that along, and he comes in, he says, I am the light of the world. And when you are in Christ, that light gets inside you, and it makes your own life glow. And he, Jesus says, you are salt, and you are light. He declares it. You are what he declares you to be. The end of Matthew, chapter 28. We oftentimes refer to it as the Great Commission, Jesus' parting words to the disciples. And, and he says, um, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. Go and make disciples. Go be the salt and the light. Go add the flavor. Go show people the way to me. Make disciples and baptize them and teach them. That's why we're here. Your faith doesn't end with you. It's to be passed on over and over again. He tells his disciples, he teaches them. It's not, it doesn't end with you. It's, it just keeps going and going and going. But you, to keep it going, you have to pass it on. You have to be my witness. You are salt. You are light. Taste and see that the Lord is good in your own life so that others can taste and see that the Lord is good. There's plenty of places in the world you could look at local stories, you could look at national stories, click on the news, you could look at stuff that's going around the world, and you could say that there's some bland flavors out there or soured there's some places that this world needs the flavor of Jesus places salt's also a, a purifying agent there's an antiseptic power to salt there's places in this world that need to be cleansed by Jesus you are salt now, there's very dark places in this world. There's dark times, there's dark situations, people are skirting in and out of the shadows. There's a lot of sin out there. Sin leads to death. Biblical metaphor of darkness. And Jesus calls us to be light, to go out and to penetrate that darkness and to chase it away. 
you are salt, you are light. And verse 16 kind of brings it home for us as to, to why. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. They may see us behaving more and more like Jesus. As, as the Holy Spirit comes in and does that sanctifying work in our life and we start to, to learn what it means and practice what it means to be Christ-like, other people are going to see that evidenced in our lives. That's supposed to happen. That, not so that they look at you and say, good job, you really cleaned yourself up. You're never the object of this. You're not the object God is. Don't take credit for that. When you know that it's Christ doing that work in your life, point the glory to God. You say, you know what? I couldn't have done that on my own. I needed Jesus. It says that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, we're all practical people, right? We like to know, well, what is that? What does it actually look like to be salt and light? What, is it, what does being salt and light look like in, in just really practical ways? Well, it looks like looking another person in the eye. It looks like speaking kind words into people's lives. It's, it looks like acknowledging people as being made in the image of God. The same God that you're made in the image of. Now, it's doing those things, not just to people who we know and like and trust, but it, it's, it's doing those sorts of things to people that we might have affixed a negative label to. The guy holding the sign at the corner that you happen to drive by all the time. And you wonder, why doesn't he just get a job? It's making eye contact, seeing him as a human that God created in his own image. It's by looking the gal in the eye who you know is not in this country legally and seeing her as one who God loves deeply, who he made in his own image. It's walking up and down the schools and looking into the eyes of the, the troubled kids, the ones who seem to cause problems all the time. And not just writing them off as no more can be done, but seeing them as somebody who God deeply loves. That's what it looks like to be salt and light in this world. It's being generous with your time, with your talent, with your money, with your compassion. It's caring for others in a way that makes a difference in their lives. It's starting the conversation of forgiveness. You were wronged. Maybe somebody wronged you. Maybe you wronged somebody else, but it's being the person who goes and tries to make it right. That's being salt. That's being light. And when people ask you about it, you give the glory to God. It's praying for your enemy. Praying that God would bless your enemy. And not just praying it, but maybe taking active steps yourself to intentionally 
bless those who are hurting you. I know I'm pushing some buttons. <laughs> That's what our scripture does for us. When Jesus calls us to be salt and light, he doesn't put it in a vacuum and say it's going to be easy. He calls us right to the rough parts of the road. Because when we address the rough parts of the road, that's one of the ways that Jesus does his work in our hearts. He wants to, he wants to smooth out all of those rough places that we struggle with. And forgiveness is one of those. It's choosing to be self-giving instead of one who takes and acquires. We'll end with this. I, a while back, somebody asked um, Pastor Eugene Peterson what he would say if he were writing what he knew would be his very last sermon. And this is how he replied. He said, I think I would want to talk about things that are immediate and ordinary. In the kind of world we live in, the primary way that I can get people to be aware of God is to say, who are you going to have breakfast with tomorrow? And how are you going to treat that person? In my last sermon, I guess I'd want to say, go home and be good to your spouse. Treat your children with respect. Do a good job at work. See, Peterson's right. We need to be righteous people of salt and light in the real world, where everyday life happens. And that involves genuinely being with real people, people who have names, not just constructed characters that we talk about, listening to them well and treating them as the images of God that they are. See, if we're salt and light, then we ought to be tasted and seen by those out in the world. And if our, if our relationships are bland, if our relationships don't have flavor, if our world is dark and filled with shadows, if our own personal world is dark and filled with shadows, maybe we need to once again taste and see that the Lord is good. Go back and recenter. Jesus has declared us to be salt. He's declared us to be light. It means we are to become and to live into and live out what we already are. That's both good news, but it's a challenge. It's a challenge to believe and, and become, to believe and become what Jesus has already declared you to be. And I know you can do it, not on your own, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the people of God said, amen. amen.